It is Friday, live from New York. I'm Richard Quest, and here's what you need to know. Disney's Decision Day, opening in Florida. Disney World is opening up, letting in visitors as the number of cases in Florida rises to new records. TikTok is having a corporate shakeup. It's designed to protect the company in the United States. And the future of flying, Delta and Emirates, the CEO and bosses of both, talk about the future of their industry. It is Friday. This is First Move. Good Friday to you. Julia is off today. I'm Richard Kress sitting in. An interesting day of trade is ahead of us. Now, bearing in mind the undercurrents of the market that we have seen all week with some sharp losses coupled with sharp gains, a worsening economic number or position and a market that's deeply worried about what comes next. So this is the way the futures are looking as we get underway with the market opening in 28 minutes or so from now. The futures are set for a mostly lower open. The Nasdaq futures are flat. Tech has opened at record three times so far this week. China's rally is on pause and that's giving cause for concern. Europe, though, does power ahead. Uh, if you look at what's happening now, in the Thursday's session was volatile. The Dow fell over 1%. Nervousness as COVID-19's hit records. Europe is higher. There are rebounds in French and Italian industrial production. The report says the US will announce retaliatory measures against France for its digital tax. Now, that's likely to happen today, but it will not enforce penalties right away. Asia and the Asia stocks, the red-hot Chinese stock market, that actually went down 2%. The first drop in eight sessions. It's a sign, <coughs> excuse me, it's a sign that Beijing wants to slow the pace of the rally. Still, it's the best week for Chinese stocks in five years. The composite is up in Shanghai for some 7% on the week. We get straight to the drivers. The UK, the United States, I beg your pardon, the United States has broken all records in the number of coronavirus cases. 63,000 cases in one day. It happens as Donald Trump is heading to Florida, not to find out what's going on there, but rather for a fundraiser and a form of campaign rally. The positivity rate in Florida is over 33%. Now, bear in mind, the WHO and most organizations would like to see a positivity rate under 10%. Now, it's over 33% in Florida. The state has the highest number of deaths in one day. CNN's Rosa Flores is in Miami. Long lines for testing in Miami, annual pass holder previews at Walt Disney World in Orlando, and the debate on whether to reopen Florida schools intensifying. If you can do Home Depot, if you can do Walmart, if you can do these things, we absolutely can do the schools. This, all while new coronavirus cases reached nearly 9,000 in the Sunshine State Thursday. The nation's top infectious disease doctor says Florida moved through the reopening process too quickly. Certainly Florida, I know, you know, I think jumped over a couple of checkpoints. 
It's one of four states accounting for about 50 percent of new infections in another record-setting day of new cases in the country. Hundreds in Phoenix waited in their cars for the chance to get a free coronavirus test as temperatures reached 110 degrees. 33 percent of people are testing positive in Arizona, and intensive care units are about 89 percent full, with around 180 beds available across the entire state. We're kind of at the point where we are stretched so thin, we're at the point of compromising patient safety. Things have definitely taken a bad turn since our state reopened here. Hospitals in Texas are also in crisis mode, and elective surgeries are on hold in much of the state. California's governor announced a record high of coronavirus-related deaths. The mortality rates are still front and center and should be in your consciousness. Uh, for those that just think uh, that now people are getting it and no one's dying, uh, that is very misleading. In fact, it's fundamentally untrue. Around 100,000 people are tested for the disease in California daily, and Los Angeles County recorded nearly 1,800 new cases on Thursday alone. More than 50 percent of people testing positive there are between the ages of 18 and 40. I would hope we don't have to resort to shutdown. I think that would be something that is obviously an extreme. So rather than think in terms of reverting back down to a complete shutdown, I would think we need to get the states pausing in their opening process. And with testing efforts ramping up nationwide, there's serious concern for keeping up with PPE and supplies for health workers and a delay in results from labs. The CDC director acknowledging there's a lot of room for improvement. We continue to have greater needs for more testing. And even though we're now up over 600,000 tests a day, we continue to need more testing in this country to confront this outbreak. And um, I anticipate that that um, uh, capability will continue to come. Even as Florida grapples with these very high numbers, one of the state's most important and largest tourist attractions, Disney World, is about to reopen. Natasha Chen is with me, which begs the question, why? Why would they wish to reopen when the state has the largest record number of cases so far? Well, Richard, I can tell you what the Orange County officials said yesterday during their press conference. They have absolute confidence in the theme parks, including Disney, because of the extensive plans these parks have given to officials on how they plan to keep people safe. In fact, an Orange County health officer said that he's much more concerned about the indoor spaces like gyms in their area where they've observed people actually not following CDC guidelines versus the wide open spaces in the theme parks where they are keeping numbers low at reduced capacity. In fact, Disney is requiring that everyone reserve their park attendance in advance so they can keep those low numbers. Everyone has to go through temperature screenings when they enter. People have to wear face masks with a loop around the ears, so no gator or bandana type masks. They are wiping down high touch surfaces frequently, spacing people out on the rides, providing hand washing and hand sanitizing stations throughout the park. Now, two of the theme parks are opening tomorrow to the public, but annual pass holders have already gotten a preview starting yesterday. Here's one pass holder I spoke to yesterday about her experience. It does feel a bit surreal at the same time, though, because the last time I was at Disney was the day they announced they were closing all parks around the globe. From what I saw today, everybody definitely was following the rules, no question. 
And so she also said she did feel a little bit nervous doing these same things that she loves again, but she was taking extra precautions by bringing her own supply of sanitizer and wipes and staying apart from other people, wearing the face mask when she was out of her car back in the parks. Uh, I also want to mention that our colleague Christina Aleshi reported that the services trades union uh, talked to her about how important it is for Disney to get this right. Uh, the services trades union said that Disney is coming up with a robust plan to protect employees, including full pay for people who may need to quarantine for a couple of weeks at home, as well as doing the necessary contact tracing to stop any spread of the virus. At the same time, the Actors Equity Association filed a grievance against Disney this week, uh, saying that they are being punished for demanding coronavirus testing for their performers. Disney has responded, saying that uh, several unions have already signed on an agreement with their safety protocols, but that the Actors' Equity Association has rejected them, refused to continue negotiating, which is unfortunate, and they say at this time they are reopening the parks without equity actors. Richard. Natasha, thank you. Natasha Chen joining me. China is vowing to retaliate and says it will do so in force after the U.S. has placed travel restrictions and travel sanctions on three Chinese officials it accuses of human rights violations. Beijing says it will set out countermeasures against U.S. individuals and institutions. Washington says those targeted by sanctions are involved in abuses against the Muslim Uyghur community in Xinjiang. The Chinese company behind TikTok could shake up the ownership structure. Now, the Trump administration is threatening sanctions against TikTok and threatening to damage the way the company can operate in the United States. Meanwhile, U.S. users are targeting the Trump campaign with online protests. Hadass Gold is with me. This is rather strange, isn't it? Because here we have a Chinese-owned company setting itself up in a different way, about to take some corporate measures deliberately to protect its US side from its home market government. Well, Richard, the U.S. market for TikTok is incredibly important. They've already lost, uh, if not their biggest market, India, in the past few days when India banned the app. And so the last thing they can really take right now is to lose the U.S. market as well. And this announcement uh, comes at a really at the end of a really tumultuous week for TikTok. They've pulled out of the Hong Kong market. They've heard from U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and now President Donald Trump that the U.S. is considering banning the app over security concerns. And so now uh, in the last 24 hours, CNN has confirmed after a Wall Street Journal report that TikTok is considering moving its headquarters out of China and or uh, setting up a new management board structure. This is all part of a way to try and allay these fears we've seen from the U.S. politicians, all of the scrutiny over how this app uses people's data and whether it is any sort of national security or security threat because of its ownership by the Chinese and because of laws in China that say that Chinese companies have to work with the Chinese government. Now, TikTok has always maintained, never has and never will share data with the Chinese government. It says data from its U.S. consumers is not stored in China, and it has appointed recently an American CEO, Disney's actually former head of streaming. And so these new measures, the new management board or the new headquarters, are all seen as part of this effort to try and allay these fears. But Richard, I'm just not sure if that will be enough because ultimately you go to where the ownership will end up and it's still with ByteDance, it's still in China. All right, what about this business of U.S. users targeting the Trump campaign? 
So there has been a lot of activity on TikTok recently because of this uh, of these announcements of the US considering banning TikTok and there's a lot of people in the United States who love TikTok especially young people. It's it's a very big in the younger demographic and there was actually even a glitch within the last few days that it wasn't connected to any of this TikTok said but it got a lot of teens in the US very fearful that their TikTok would be cut off from them because of the Trump administration and in, and in retaliation we've seen TikTokers in the past also try to target the Trump administration if you remember during that Tulsa rally, there was TikTokers who claimed that they reserved thousands of seats and then ended up not going to try to show the empty seats. So now TikTokers, there's a new campaign where they're trying to give the official Trump 2020 campaign app low reviews on the App Store as a way to somehow harm the app. And I went up and I actually looked at the ratings. So uh, as of a few hours ago, the app in the U.S. App Store has more than 261,000 ratings with the average uh, rating of 1.2. And keep in mind, you can't go below one. Now, Apple and Google Play try to do their best to get to get rid of fake reviews, but there's only so much they can do. And these TikTokers, they might be trying to get this Trump app off of these app stores, but it is very, very, very unlikely they will ever successfully do so just because of a bunch of bad reviews. All right. Addis Gold, who is with us now in news, making news around the world. Hong Kong says that it will close the schools once again as the number of coronavirus cases in the region rises dramatically. CNN's Will Ripley is with me from Hong Kong. Um, the, to close the schools again, schools have become a touchstone in all across the world. You see it here in the United States about when and how schools can reopen. To close the schools again suggests the situation in Hong Kong is now reaching very serious levels. That's an absolutely correct uh, assessment, Richard. They just don't feel that it's safe for students to be in school. Uh, and, you know, it was just a couple of weeks ago, really, that Hong Kong started to relax a lot of the social distancing measures. Restaurants were getting closer to full capacity. They've now been cut down to 60% uh, and only eight people to a table, four at a bar. Uh, that's because some of the clusters that they've detected in recent days of local transmission are tied to restaurants and bars. Also, taxis, so they're going to have to test more taxi drivers. It's hard to find out who's been in and out of that taxi if somebody's infected. Uh, you know, every taxi driver that I've you know, seen in the last week is wearing a mask, just like pretty much everyone else walking around, so you don't have to feel too unsafe. But also a senior care center. In fact, many of them. Uh, there have been clusters tied to that as well. And just today, they announced that there was one apartment complex that had a number of these new cases. And some of them, they can't figure out how people got it because they have no travel history. So, you know, Hong Kong basically now is going to tighten back up. Uh, schools could be closed. You know, they could even take things further. They could make a suggestion that people work from home again. Uh, they could shut down the courts. Uh, there's a lot of other things that they could do. They could make public gatherings small again. They Right now, they allow to 50 people, they might right. make that number smaller, Richard. So it's, uh, it's certainly, you know, mission critical at this stage to try to prevent this third wave from really expanding. And give me a feel, if you will, Will, for, 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 for this, it must be surreal that the uh, situation is getting worse with coronavirus, with the, again, and at the same time you have the new security law taking effect, which has created its own tensions, which leaves Hong Kongers feeling what? <laughs> oh, not knowing what's going to happen next. I mean, we do have to keep the coronavirus in context. The number of cases just today jumped to over 1,400. 1,400 people in a city of 7 million, and they've had seven deaths. 
So people are concerned about the virus. And, um, you know, there are people who are really concerned about the national security law. But I would say the overwhelming sense amongst Hong Kongers is they were happy to see the city getting back to life again. You know, people who were not so invested in the protest movement might have been pleased that, uh, you know, huge areas of the city are not shut down uh, like they were last year, except now they are going to be you know, shut down again, especially if the virus situation gets worse. So I guess here in Hong Kong, a lot of people feel like this is a city that just can't catch a break. Will Ripley, where it's nine o'clock at night on a Friday night, your weekend starts now. Will, thank you. Japan is uh, reporting a spike in new coronavirus cases. Tokyo has reported 243 cases today alone. It's the largest one-day tally since the outbreak began. Tokyo's governor says the rising numbers reflect an increase in testing. Japan's reported almost 1,000 coronavirus deaths. On first move, the search for a vaccine. The scientific head of Johnson & Johnson is with us. It's about where they're about to start trials. We need to understand exactly where and when and how. And the CEO of one of America's big three bookings uh, says that bookings haven't tumbled. They've stalled. It is Delta's CEO coming up in a moment. Welcome back to First Move. Julia's off today. I'm Richard Quest. We're about 10 minutes away from the start of trading at the end of the week. I wouldn't say it's been a difficult week. It has been a tricky week as economic data has given pause for thought whilst the worsening coronavirus situation in the United States has added layer upon layer. So as we start the last day of the week, futures are volatile. For instance, Flat open, but the Nasdaq still hitting a new record. The Dow and the S&P, a little change over the week so far. And that nervousness in of itself tells us what all we need to know about the markets. Look at the month over the overall. The S&P and Dow have fallen. The Nasdaq, interestingly, a safe haven 6%. I'm guessing it is the makeup of the Nasdaq. It is technology, and technology is the one that's leading the way through the virus. Oil, on track for a losing week. Brent and WTI have been down over 2%. Flat, the IEA, International Energy Agency, is seeing continued downside risk for crude on COVID uncertainties, and that's about economic growth. The drug maker, John Johnson & Johnson, is accelerating coronavirus vaccine development. One of many, of course, more, several dozen, who are moving forward. Some are faster than others. J&J &J is about to start phase one clinical trials in Belgium and the US. That's earlier than expected. If successful, a billion vaccines by the end of next year. And, of course, committed to making the vaccine affordable and available. Vice Chair and Chief Scientific Officer of JNJ's Paul Stofelsi is with me now. Paul, very good morning to you. I appreciate your time, sir. Um, if we look at the vaccine, you're just about to go into stage ones. Others are already at stage two, with some going into human trials at stage three. Do you think you're a long way behind? No, we are not a long way behind. We have a lot of uh, uh, experience with our previous vaccines, HIV, Zika, Ebola, RSV. We vaccinated with the same platform, 65,000 people. So we're very comfortable uh, that we have a safe vector which we are using. And we took a little bit more, more, more time to optimize the vaccine for maximum efficacy. And that's now done. We, are, uh, we have um, prepared the clinical materials. 
second half of July, we start the vaccination of 1,000 volunteers, 500 Europe, 500 US. And if all goes well, then by the end of September, we'll be in full-scale uh, phase three studies with the goal of having efficacy data before the year end or early next year, depending on can we find the places where there is enough transmission to study the vaccine. So in short, I think we are um, very well on track with a good vaccine platform, which we can scale up and is safe. By the time you get to this stage, are you pretty sure that it works? Well, we have very good animal data and we worked a lot on first validating the human pri the non-human primates. We published that in science, the uh, model, as well as the prototype vaccines where we could show that we have had very good efficacy. And now we are in the last, last stages of the challenge models and uh, the, learning, uh, the learning still have to come out. But at the same time, we right. think we have a good chance of having a single high dose vaccine or a boosted dose uh, with very good uh, neutralizing antibody levels and chance of success. So there is good hope right. that we will be yeah. able to uh, yeah. get to a good vaccine. Hmm? You've got the EU spending billions. Uh, you've got the US with warp speed spending billions. I understand this is the money required to provide to people like yourselves for the R&D and development costs at speed. But the danger of the developed world hijacking the early production is real. I would say that it's not about hijacking the early production. We'll make sure that we have enough capacity in the world to make sure that, that we can provide all parts of the world with vaccine. And of course, not everybody will be, be able to be vaccinated at the same time. But if you stratify that in risk groups where the healthcare workers should come first, where the high risk people should follow, then there could be a global strategy which would allow to vaccinate large parts of the population very quickly and, and avoiding deaths and avoiding the catastrophe we go through in many parts of the world now. Paul, I see that as I was just talking to our correspondent in Hong Kong about an upsurge. You look at what's happening in the US, a dramatic upsurge. One wonders if the same will happen in Europe as it reopens. The urgency for a vaccine is obvious. When do you think realistically the first vaccine will be given? Well, there might be vaccines before the year end. There is a good chance that with the acceleration of clinical trials, there might be uh, a vaccine before the year end in reasonable quantities. But I think most of it will come in the first quarter, uh, January, February, March next year with data, as well as regulatory approvals. We need to first show they are safe and effective. We have to do all the right work to give comfort to people that vaccines are safe. And then uh, somewhere in the first quarter, I think it could start on a larger scale. Um, right. And, and finally, how are you going to sort it all out as to who's paid what? The different governments that have invested in the R&D for these different vaccines to help speed things along, warp speed, for example. If your vaccine is successful, and please God it is, and it goes into commercial production, what happens then? Do you charge for it? Do you then reimburse governments for the amount they've given? Have they effectively used that money to buy? What's the mechanism? 
Yeah, we, we have uh, constructed a global not-for-profit model, which provides the, the which provides the possibility to incur ourselves costs, but also account for costs from governments and contributions. And we make a big pool in the world where we make sure that we get to a not-for-profit, but from that we can absorb or repay certain monies to certain governments if that would be required. Often governments are contributing with research and grants, sometimes contributing with investing in capital infrastructure for manufacturing and others paying for advanced purchase through advanced purchase agreement to share the risk. So there is different models of how we do this, but I think in a very equitable way uh, all over the world. Paul, good to see you. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. I'll let you get back to the more important work of actually getting the vaccine to work. Thank you very much. In a moment on First Move, just after the market has opened, ahead of Disney World, the Workers' Union says it has, it is going to fight the reopening as the virus surges in Florida. Well, how do you get an opening in a state which is pretty much almost out of control when it comes to coronavirus. In a moment. Hello, I'm Richard Quest, in for Julia today. Welcome to First Move. We're off to the races. The market has now opened in New York, final trading day of the week. And if you look at early stage, they're searching for direction. That's really what's happening there. All three are higher. Barely and just. Not surprised the Nasdaq's lagging just a bit after the tear it's been on. Volatile is the way of the day, as new cases of COVID-19 hit records in the US and there are greater concerns of new layoffs. Reports say Wells Fargo could cut the bank, could cut thousands of jobs this year. Safe havens are doing well. The 10-year and the 30-year bond yields near their lowest levels since April. If you look at that, the the tenure down at half a percent, it's lost nearly 1.8. And gold's on the rise again, up half a percent, on track for the fifth straight weekly gain for the, uh, for the gold. The most popular theme park in the world is due to reopen this weekend. Uh, Disney World is reopening, as some of the parks are, as visitors get to return to the uh, Florida theme park on Saturday. And some of the 75,000 workers who run the show Joining me, the man who represents many of those workers is Matt Hollis, the president of the Service Trades Council Union. And I understand that the, the concern that you have. But Matt, I, I do wonder, is it, is it even possible, in your view, to reopen safely at a time of epidemic and pandemic proportions in Florida? Well, good morning, um, Richard. Thank you for having me. And on behalf of the you know, 43,000 members of the Service Trades Council Union, we appreciate the opportunity to you know, kind of highlight this, uh, this event. As far as the safety, you know, is what's possible, um, I think that what we've, what we've really focused on is this, the, the, the practical points of returning people to work. Um, you know, Disney, um, Disney's a unique place, and it's, it's, it's a magical place, for lack of a better term. Um, and as, you know, we, we've looked at since Disney's began ramping up, uh, you know, Disney Springs has been open since May now. And that's not a small thing. That's, you know, a few thousand cast members that uh, required to support that operation. The resorts have been open 
uh, to a limited capacity for uh, a little while now. And now the parks are gearing up for their reopening. They just had the uh, cast member previews. They've got annual pass holders. And uh, the reports that we're hearing from people that have been in the parks and that our staff and our shop stewards, cast members, those folks right. have been in the parks. It's been a largely positive experience. So what more would you like to see Disney do? I mean, they've put in place an entire raft. And obviously, Disney is one of those companies that one would expect will absolutely follow best practice and recommendation. So in your view, what's lacking and what more needs to be done? Well, you know, we, we have said uh, from the beginning, one of the consistent messages that I've that I've taken to every media interview that I've done was that Disney has the resources to get it right. And Disney has every reason to get it right. So far, uh, the Service Trades Council Union and uh, our principal officers are uh, union leaders that have been you know, canvassing the members and their concerns. So far, Disney has been responsive to those uh, to those requests. There's physical distance barriers. There's PPE that's being provided. Sometimes that's multiple levels of protection. Um, but it's not just, um, you know, as guests go to Disney World, they're going to see a, a drastically different experience. And that's necessary. And uh, so we expect that Disney will continue to take right. the recommendations of the CDC, the recommendations of the local ordinances. And uh, so, but to answer your question directly, to this point, Disney has has consistently and uh, timely addressed the concerns that we've brought up, and we expect that that will continue. Right. So just let me clarify, you're not fighting Disney in the sense of opposing the opening uh, of the parks, but you are deeply concerned that as this moves forward, that, that, that you know, everyone is, I suppose, every, that there are alarm bells ringing for the possibility of what can go wrong. Well, I think that uh, there are certainly alarm bells, but it's not on behalf of the Service Trades Council at this time. Uh, but I think uh, so, you know, I would not dismiss the, the, the alarm bell scenario that you present. We don't dismiss that as an impossibility. But the other side of that is uh, deserves consideration, too. And that is that this is a good opportunity to demonstrate that uh, in workforces where employees have a union and they have a voice in their working conditions right. and employers take those concerns seriously and implement them consistently, that Disney can lead the way in demonstrating a, a safe way to open a theme park. And so far, we've seen that response. We've advocated on behalf of the uh, unionized employees in uh, at Disney World, and we'll continue to do that. And we're hoping that, uh, that, the, that what comes out of this is that where employees have a voice and employers respond to that voice, that uh, it makes a drastic difference. The union that I work for, um, we represent people outside of the, the theme park industry. And I can tell you, we haven't seen near the responsiveness from a lot of those companies, sadly. But uh, the, on behalf of the Service Trades Council and, and our 43,000 members, we'll continue to, to advocate. And uh, we believe that it'll be the potential is there that when companies right. take those uh, concerns seriously, uh, it'll make a big difference. Matt, good to have you, sir. I wish the opening well. Excellent. I've spent many a happy hour spending too much money in Disney down in Florida, and I'm looking forward to doing so again, sir. Thank you. And to your members, who, and the cast members uh, who make it all possible, uh, are appreciative. Thank you very much. Now, first move continues. You will hear from the CEO of Delta Airlines, one of the big three, and the president of Emirates. 
one of the largest global carriers. It's all next. They both are looking to the future and how quickly things can get back to normal, if. The CEO of Delta Airlines says that bookings have stalled, having seen a resurgence in May and June. Now things have gone in the opposite direction. Ed Bastian was speaking to Poppy Harlan. In the post-July uh, 4th period, there's no question that the spread of the virus, as well as all the quarantine measures that have gone into place, has started to pull back the demand expectations. So yeah. I'd say we're in, we're in a kind of a cautious pause right now in terms of any additional growth. Are your bookings, future bookings, tumbling the way United said just on Monday theirs are? I wouldn't say bookings are tumbling. I, I would say bookings have stalled. Uh, we came through in June, week after week, we're seeing some pretty nice demand pickup as economies were opening up, particularly in the South. But then as you've seen the spread of the virus pick up, uh, those same bookings have stalled. We just heard United uh, warn 45 percent of their frontline workers, that's 36,000 workers, that they could lose their job come October 1st. Is, is Delta facing the same scenario in terms of potential layoffs? We are facing potential layoffs, but not nearly the level that United uh, communicated. Close to half of our staff have taken voluntary uh, leaves uh, for the month with no pay at all, just voluntary uh, unpaid leaves. Second thing we're doing is we got an early retirement offer with our employees that's still open. And you know, we're expecting, we already know, there's thousands of employees have signed up to take that uh, offer. And as a result of that, we're looking at uh, you know, probably a much lower uh, impact number uh, come October 1. And our goal is to try to eliminate, not have any furloughs. Is there a chance at this point, maybe you don't have to lay anyone off in the fall? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a real chance of that happening. Delta has mandated masks for anyone who wants to get on your planes. But the federal government isn't, right? They're just recommending it. How hard does that make your job, right? Do you want the federal government to mandate masks on all commercial airlines? It would certainly help, and I, I do believe that would be a, be a good uh, action. I, I don't expect it to happen, though. Uh, so what the, the federal government has done is left it up to each airline to make their own decisions. So masks are mandated on Delta, and uh, for any customer uh, who's not wearing a mask will not gain access to the airplane. If a customer does not choose to keep their mask on, uh, that customer is going to lose their right to fly Delta for a period of time. And we, we, we warned them several times uh, during the flight. We have had some uh, customers we've had to put on, on those lists. But generally speaking, compliance is pretty good. It, it sounds like a federal mandate would help so much in terms of requiring masks. Have you called the White House? Have you called the administration and asked them to do this? Well, it's my uh, we, we have to, we've had those discussions with the White House. Uh, you know, the industry collectively uh, hasn't given a, a strong point of view on it. At Delta, I, I feel strongly about that, but I'm not sure some of my peers at other airlines feel the same way. So as a practical matter, I'm not sure it's going to happen. Let's talk middle seats. Delta's promising flyers right now an empty seat next to you. Does that mean under no circumstance will the middle seat be booked? That's correct. Uh, so we've announced through the end of September 
that we're going to cap our load factors at 60%. So the plane will not carry more than 60% of the customers on board the plane and that we are going to block all middle seats on those planes. The head of PR at United says, quote, when it comes to blocking middle seats, that's a PR strategy, not a safety strategy. Is it a PR strategy? I, I think it's a really important safety feature and all the medical experts and we have we have the Mayo Clinic. We're working down here in Atlanta with Emory. Uh, we've got a lot of lot of a lot of counsel on this that indicates while you can't logistically expect airplanes to only uh, or customers to sit six feet apart on planes, distance matters, space matters. Ed Bastian on the issue of the middle seat. The president of Emirates, Tim Clark, has his own views about the way things are going to move forward. So Tim had announced he was retiring next year. Now the question is when and if he will go. However, in the meantime, he believes that things will get better for the airline industry. It will not be as bad as it is. My own view is that, yes, uh, by the summer of 22, we'll see a restoration of normality. By that, I mean pre-COVID levels, not expanded as we were going by 7 or 8% per annum, but it'll be flatlined to where we were at the end of the last, uh, the last year in 2019. I mean, I've heard some, some airlines, some of the legacy carriers, talk about shrinking 20, 30 percent. Yeah, I think, I think, to be quite honest, we'll be between 10 and 20 percent in the end. We are uh, probably not quite the same as many airlines because, don't forget, most of our workforce is expatriate. And once they have left the United Arab Emirates and Dubai in particular, so it becomes far more difficult to get them back as quickly as we may need them. Who was your worst cash burn? Oh, you've heard the same same kind of figures. We were is a million dollars an hour, that kind of thing at one point. Um, I think we were not dissimilar to some of the other big uh, legacy full service carriers, uh, Lufthansa, Air France, KLM, you, you name it. We were all in these rather difficult situations, but we've arrested that. We've attended to costs uh, in, in a very big way. Um, obviously, we're not, we don't face the operating costs of these aircraft, uh, but by speaking to the debt providers in some instances and others, others in, the, in the mix of debt provision, we've been able to lay off quite a lot of this. So we're in good shape at the moment. People talk a lot about opportunities. You'll have seen Alan Joyce when he did his capital raising uh, buried at the bottom of the statement was you know we want to prepare ourselves for such opportunities uh, that will arise and i know you said something similar what are those opportunities to which you were referring well i think you have to roll forward richard until that that time where the jury's out or whether it's 22 23 24 25. for a start we all get through this this horrifically tough time uh, not all will get through that, as we're already witnessing. And when, in the absence of government support and bailouts, most of the airline industry today would, would be in bankruptcy. Let's be quite honest about it. But going forward, if we can survive all of this, I'm not one of those people that believe that there is going to be a new norm. In other words, that people will not travel or their, their uh, incidence of travel, their frequency of travel, their capacity to pay for travel will be compromised. I think that it's a little bit of a wake-up call at the moment, 
But one only has got to look at what happened, for instance, in the United Kingdom last week or the week before or during May when they started to release the lockdown, 500,000 people headed for the beaches. And when they opened the bars and restaurants uh, last week, mm. so there were huge numbers turning out. The pressure to return to, to, to degrees of normality, notwithstanding uh, the points I made about the science and medicine, my own belief is that people will come back, they will want to restore the way it was as best they can because they experienced it, they savoured it, they enjoyed it. And in the case of air travel, it became become very much part of their lifestyle and and it wasn't so aspirational as it might have been 20, 30 years ago. Now it's the way it is and that's the way they want it back. That's the way I look at it. Secondly, without being too predatorial about it, my own view is there are going to be a significant number of carriers which will have difficulty in mounting long-haul operations because the risk right. associated with that and therefore, you know, with the amount of debt that's on the balance sheet, the concerns about cash, the risk-adverse nature of boards, I would suggest that there's going to be a reduction in capacity as compared to what it was a year ago. Anybody looking at the current situation of aviation in the region, in your region, says it makes sense for you and your neighbour Etihad to, 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 to consolidate, to come together. I know that this is above your pay grade. This is being dealt with at much higher levels, uh, which, which is saying something, bearing in mind how high you are to start with. But, but as an aviation man, you must surely see it makes sense for you and Etihad to merge. I think, uh, look, you're right about the pay grade. You're right about the decisions that will be taken. But let's be quite honest about this. The, the, the Etihad is already contracted to a, a shape and size where they will be post-pandemic much more fit for purpose. At the same time, with what's been going on in the last few months with this pandemic, Emirates is, is obviously uh, adjusting what it's doing, the scale of what it does. And I believe that by in a couple of years time, both carriers will be well positioned to re-enter the markets on the basis of what I just said a few minutes ago and do this profitably, uh, incisively, with a high degree of focus and at the same time, keep themselves separate. Uh, well, that's not to say that behind the scenes where we can, we don't, we don't uh, contravene uh, competition mm -hmm. law in the West and everywhere else, that we do not work together. And both uh, Tony Douglas and I had many, many chats about how we could we could share out uh, the goods and services procurement into the business. Just give me a... It's a Tim Clark talking to me there. Now, in just a moment, it's an epic investment for Sony. They are buying into the parent company of Fortnite because one of the things about all of us being at home Online gaming has gone through the roof. We need to wrap up the week as the markets in New York are open and doing business. Claire's with me for a final look at the way things are looking. Um, two down, one up. We've had a volatile day, a volatile week, I should say. And I'm not sure where the direction is now because the level of uncertainty that's come into the market. Yeah, Richard, I think we've had not just a volatile day and a volatile week. We've actually had sort of a volatile 
month to five weeks ever since we saw that that come down at the beginning of June when the markets topped out after the, the exuberance we saw coming off the March lows. I think the nervousness is clearly around the rise in virus cases that we're seeing in the U.S. impact that is having, having on reopening. We're already starting to see that uh, reflected in the behavior of some companies uh, and in some data, even though, of course, the unemployment picture is improving. And I think a lot of focus will, will look ahead now uh, to, to the continuation of that data, the, the potential for, for sort of drug breakthroughs we're seeing today, for example, with Gilead, and then the Fed meeting at the end of this month, Richard. Claire, thank you for bringing us up to date on the way the markets are looking. Claire Sebastian. Uh, for, for them. And that is first move for this week. Julia will be back with you on Monday and I'll be in London at this stage, leaving for London tonight with all the joys and delights of traveling in the coronavirus era. Take a look at the way the markets are love you and leave you. They are betwixt and between. The news never stops on CNN. There's more after the break. Whatever you're up to, I hope it is profitable. That's the market. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.